That was Sweet Honey in the Rock. We give the people the right to vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk, a talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Maria Sanchez, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to call in and be part of the conversation at 888-627-6008, or you can Skype your questions to us. And we have a special guest tonight, uh, but before we introduce him, let me say hello to Maria. Maria, are you out there? How's Maria's life? Maria's out here on the, the left coast, um, doing well, except for my eldest who got COVID, is, continues his long hauler uh, status. He was at the doctor with tests this week, lung issues that won't get resolved and no one knows what's going on. Well, he's 35 years old. He's never had a problem. And now this, and he got COVID in December, so... Wow. That's why they're saying long hauler. Um, but I get my second dose on Wednesday, so I'm good. Well, good. And let's keep him in our prayers. Thank you for uh, that. Um, tonight we have uh, with us former Congressman Zach Space from Ohio. Um, he was uh, he, he represented a district uh, in southeastern Ohio for two terms in Congress and uh, he's currently working on a project called Sunday Creek Horizons, which he's going to tell us all about. And uh, we're going to spend an hour or the next 55 minutes, rather, uh, talking to the congressman and getting his uh, opinions on what's going on in the world today, especially in the Democratic Party. So welcome to the show, Congressman Space. It's, it's an honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you, uh, Senator Brown. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, let's start uh, with uh, the fact that you spent two terms. And before I go any further, let me say you were also a supporter of the D.C. Voting Rights Act. So thank you for that. Uh, you were one of the one of the people that voted to pass it. Uh, but you were in Congress for two terms. Uh, a lot of guys stay there for a very, very long time, Congressman. Why only two terms? Well, well, uh, Senator, I I didn't expect to stay there such a short time. Actually, uh, the way Congress works these days, building up seniority and relationships and understanding, you know, the institutional parameters, really important. I think the longer you're there, in some cases, the more effective you can be. Of course, there are limits to that. Uh, I was elected in 2006 uh, in a uh, what would be considered a red district. It had been drawn for my predecessor. Um, I was able to win again in 2008, uh, but uh, just simply could not withstand the political forces associated with what we kind of commonly understand as the Tea Party movement of 2009-2010. So I was asked nicely to leave Washington and... uh, the truth is uh, I'm finding a lot of satisfaction right now in the private sector, um, working really hard uh, across the Appalachian region right now, and I uh, think that we're making a positive dis- difference in the lives of people in uh, southeastern Ohio right now. Well, that's great, and that's really important work, and we appreciate that. And let me, let, let me just uh, continue on, on that track. You were a blue dog Democrat. 
And and I've been a de liberal Democrat for a long time and a political consultant back in the days when blue dog Democrats were just coming of age. We didn't like liberal Democrats didn't like them particularly. But do you think if we had listened more to blue dog Democrats, we might not be so divided? Because obviously, in my opinion, the Democratic Party lost touch with people like your constituents in, in rural America and Appalachia, and it cost us in 2016, and it's and it still costing us. Do you think we should have uh, listened more to Blue Dog Democrats and been less, I don't know, condescending and uh, uh with our attitudes and and maybe we wouldn't have the same kind of divisiveness we have today. But may I interject before you answer yeah, that yeah, question? Please, because I never knew about the Blue Dog Caucus until I read your bio. So I'm assuming that other listeners might not know. Could you explain to our listeners what that is, what sure. it represents, and then the answer to the senator's question, please? Of course. Uh, so the Blue Dog Caucus is... Uh, composed primarily of rural Democrats from around the country, not entirely, but uh, almost exclusively rural Democrats who are a little bit more moderate in their political dispositions, particularly as it relates to economic uh, issues associated with you know, fiscal uh, spending, uh, you know, operating within uh, your budget, things of that nature. Um, and it's when I left Congress in 2010, there were, I think, 52 or 53 blue dogs, meaning 52 or 53 Democrats from, you know, moderate districts. And after the 2010 election, that number dropped to somewhere in the teens, where I believe it stays uh, and remains to this day. And the, the I guess the point of all that is that there aren't very many um, moderate Democrats left. And I, you know, in terms of your question, Senator, I don't know if it's, you know, you know, really appropriate for me to categorize whether they should have listened to us. But I do think that the Democratic Party needs to uh, do everything it can to expand its tent. This rural, urban, uh, or rural metropolitan area divide that you referenced is, in, you know, my opinion, one of the most pressing cultural problems which has significant political ramifications that this country faces today. And I think as a party, we need to be more sensitive to that. Um, I think that there are a lot of, I think President Biden is sensitive to that. I think, uh, you know, as you know, a lot of folks on, on the left side of the aisle look at what's happening on the right side of the aisle and point to the extremism or the, the divisions within their party we need to be careful that we don't, uh, you know, come apart at the seams, that we have respect for one another. And if, if you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi hopes to maintain her speakership, which I hope she does, we need to hold on to or win some of these rural seats. The only way to do that is to deliver meaningful policy uh, to rural America. And that's one of the things that I'm, you know, very optimistic about moving forward with under the Biden administration. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think for for uh, many years, uh, the party has has become more constricted and more out of touch with certain uh, places in America, especially rural America. I'm sorry, Maria, do you have a question? I, I did, because I know that you're hugely involved with the Appalachia, Ohio part of your state. And can you give us a history of Appalachia and 
where it was and how it got to where it is. Because in the research that I did, my understanding is that the government reached out and they said, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. And then slowly and insidiously, they offered them items that they became then almost like water dropping on a rock over time, more dependent, more dependent. And now the poverty that exists, what it is today. Is is that true? Or, or could you tell us how it has evolved to to be where it is today? I think there are definitely some elements of truth in what you've just laid out, Maria. It, I think to understand where we are today, and not just uh, southeastern Ohio, but the entire Appalachian region, it's a 13-state region running from parts of Alabama all the way up to parts of New York. This is a, a region that has long been exploited, oftentimes by outsiders, for its natural resources. And if you look back at southeastern Ohio as a case study, you'll see that for well over 100 years, maybe 150 years, uh, we have been a vital source of resource uh, for the uh, national interest. It, it started with probably iron ore. It included timber, clay, coal, now natural gas. Um, and there's a long history of exploitation. Many of the profits generated by these industries went to outsiders. Um, it created cyclical boom-bust uh economic cycles that are not good for the long-standing uh, health of a community. And oftentimes they left behind devastating environmental impacts. Uh, so there's a, you know, if, if you go through uh, the region today, by the way, it's not, there are so many uh, good things happening in the region that oftentimes those get lost in, in the story. Uh, but, but the truth of the matter is we have a lot of challenges. Because of the poverty that this region faces, we see uh, lower educational attainment rates, higher addiction rates. Um, uh, we see uh, higher suicide rates. This lack of, uh, and again, we're, we're, seeing, we, we, we're witnessing as we speak and we, as we have been for the last 20 years, the demise of coal. Coal has been a pillar in this uh, community or this culture for a long time. Uh, and, and again, this is yet a, a continuing pattern and a long course of conduct. The region is also very provincial in nature, meaning you've got a, a wide dispersion of population along, along a, a very large region. As a result, that uh, provinciality has encouraged uh, counties within southeastern Ohio, let's say, to compete against one another. And the region itself, itself has lacked or been plagued by the inability to organize, uh, to advocate for itself in one voice, uh, to collect and harness its, its power to, to yield real results. Uh, the people of the region now, and they're, you know, clearly it's a, it's a red region, but whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a lot of folks have some legitimate reasons to be, um, to feel as though they've been left behind. Um, again, we've seen this before in the Appalachian region. It's not new to us. Um, and I think there's anger and resentment about that, some of which is justified. Some of it's not. I mean, we, you know, some of it may be based in the wrong motives, but there are a lot of people. If you've got, you know, if you've got two or three kids and you're, you're, you're trying to survive at a job that pays 10 or 12 bucks an hour and you're living in a mobile home court, and you can't afford to send your kids to college, those are good causes for resentment and frustration and anger. And I think what the Democratic Party needs to do, what both parties should be doing, 
is understanding, uh, you know, the history, uh, the culture, and providing real meaningful benefits uh, to create a sustainable, diverse economy across the region, something we have not had really in our entire history. We've gone, again, up and down, boom and bust, and that's not good for the long-term health of the region. Well, that gets us right into what you're doing these days, Congressman, and that is, <coughs> excuse me, Sunday Creek Horizons, uh, where one of the one of the things in 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 your um, on your website says that you are, you're attempting to bring socioeconomic justice to Appalachia. Uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Socioeconomic justice for Appalachia. Thank you, Senator. Uh, that manifests itself in different forms. But at the end of the day, it's providing families with an opportunity to earn a good living and create an, a, a society in which their children thrive and can do even better than them. That's something we haven't had. We have a lack of access to vital technology and broadband. Uh, the wage scale is poor. We've seen many companies that once at one time were working throughout the region fold up, especially in our urban centers across the region, and go to China. Um, so we've got, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, uh, and we need to figure out how we can tap into the strengths that we have as a region. If we're able to connect the region to the outside world fully and ubiquitously, uh, we'll have an opportunity to, to grow our communities. Community development in the region is exciting. Uh, the work I'm doing at Sunday Creek, one of the things we do is we promote local economic development. Uh, we try to provide communities with the capacity they need that they don't have uh, to draw down federal grants. Uh, we created a nonprofit last year to address issues associated with children across the region, specifically with reference to their mental and behavioral health. The Appalachian Children Coalition uh, was a cross-sector collaboration between educators and uh, mental health professionals to deal with the, the tragedy associated with all the stressors that these kids are under and the lack of resources to deal with them. So Sunny Creek is, is trying to fill a, a large void right now. It's a for-profit ent uh, entity operating pretty much in a nonprofit space. Um, and the, one of the biggest concerns that we see uh, across our region, again, is this lack of access to vital technology and lack of local capacity uh, to draw money down from Washington or Columbus or where, and promote local economic development initiatives uh, that, that would include workforce development programs as well. So what you're doing in Ohio, does that translate to the other 12 states, is it? You said it encompasses 13 states of the Appalachian. I didn't rec realize that. I, I've always thought of Appalachia was like a place in a state. I didn't realize that it was to New York and I guess into Canada a little bit. Um, so can is there power in numbers or can you be the prototype with what you do in Ohio to empower others in, in the other parts of the other states? We hope to. I mean, I, at the end of the day, uh, we will find our strength by working together. Uh, and in, in many cases, that means setting aside political differences. I, I mean, I'm working. I'm a Democrat. Everybody knows that. And I'm working with communities that are solidly red. But, but you know, at the end of the day, we, we all have a common objective. We want, want what's best for these communities. 
uh, across the Appalachian region, there are a lot of commonalities. Not every place is the same. It's broken up into Southern Appalachian District, or the Central Appalachian Region, and the Northern Appalachian Region. There are some differences, but there are a lot of commonalities. And really, a really good analogy, I think, at this moment in history, to, to look back and identify, you know, these these common themes that can really help the, the region. Back when um, Roosevelt uh, ushered in the uh, New Deal, and he uh, signed the Rural Electrification Act in 1936, and this brought, it, it lit up in, entire parts of the Appalachian region that had been dark before that, and it, it created enormous economic opportunity for the region, the region prospered, wage scales went up, working conditions got better, and our country became stronger for it. So it wasn't just a gift given to the Appalachian region. It was a hand up uh, to allow the Appalachian region to participate in this nation's uh, prosperity. And, and what we see, you know, what I see today is if you go throughout the Appalachian region to this day, which is, again, most of it's a very uh, ruby red in terms of the political spectrum, but there is fond recollection across this region for FDR. All these years later, uh, even in these red states, because there's this passed down, I think, uh, gratefulness for not having forgotten them. And I think the same thing to a certain degree can be said of John Kennedy, who instigated the uh, Appalachian Regional Commission and went into the region and demonstrated and showed to the world the, the needs. Um, again, Kennedy, Democrat, region, uh, bright red, but I think very generally speaking, it's safe to say that both Roosevelt and Kennedy enjoy, even to this day, really high um, approval ratings. And there's a lesson there, right? Uh, for those politicians, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, when you when you understand what's going on in these communities, you provide resources to these communities to give them a hand up, there will be not only socioeconomic benefits, but political as well. So how do we get a guy like you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Congressman, out of Ohio and back to Washington? Doesn't the Biden administration need people that have this understanding? Don't we really need some people at, a, at, at, at an administration level that are willing to take on uh, initiatives like the ones you just talked about with Roosevelt and Kennedy, don't we? And do you think we have those people there? I think that the, the President Biden has done a, a really good job with his appointments thus far. I know that this is a long and slow process, but I have every faith. I mean, I, I you know I don't know him well, but I've met President Biden on two or three occasions. I find him to be a sincere and authentic man. Uh, and when he says he's concerned about this region, I believe him. And he has given us every indication that he understands the challenges that we have in accessing broadband technology. He understands the concerns that communities have uh, that have been reliant on coal for generations, now f suddenly find their, their economies wrecked. Um, he, I think he gets those things. I think he genuinely cares about them. And again, there is a political imperative here as well. So he'd be smart to care about them, and I think he will. So I'm, I'm confident that he will put the right people in place to address these issues aggressively in the coming two to four years. Well, I hope you're right, and I think you're right about him. I think he's honest and, and forthright, and that's why he got elected, because uh, given what we've had in the past four years, America was longing for somebody like him. Uh, my first job in politics was working for Jimmy Carter, 
and he was the same kind of guy. He came out of not not the best president, I've got to admit, but but he came after Richard Nixon and America was longing for somebody that was honest and true and Jimmy Carter certainly is those things. He's 96 and he still teach Sunday school. Uh, in fact, Maria and I had somebody on our show who had attended his Sunday school and he's still building houses for the poor. So I, I he may agree. be the best ex-president we've ever had. Best, uh-huh. best ex-president <laughs> we've ever had. And you know what? I went to a reunion. I have to say this. I went to a Carter reunion and he started his speech by saying uh, that he was proud of the fact that he had been endorsed by every major newspaper in America, uh, he said. But unfortunately, it wasn't until 1991. So uh, <laughs> you know, I think I think that pretty sa- pretty much says it. That that yeah, he is a he's a great ex president. Let me, let me ask you about technology. Mm-hmm. Will this level the playing field? Because it seems to me that when you look at a map of Appalachia. The, the you know that you've described these many states they're all rural they're all you know some of the communities are very much isolated does technology level the playing field since uh, uh, we can now connect to people all over the world so there is no silver bullet no one thing like for example extending broadband everywhere would solve all the problems but there is no one thing that would have a greater impact uh, than extending broadband everywhere in the region. Uh, and it has impacted us. We've seen this exacerbated and, uh, and exemplified clearly by COVID over the course of the last 12 months. Uh, our community's schools suffered because of the low um, rate of broadband adoption or availability. Our health care, particularly for seniors, suffered considerably because Many of our residents couldn't engage in, in telehealth or distance uh, medicine, and it has stifled economic opportunity in a profound way. Uh, if you, you know, we we all know now, if you have access to broadband, you can work from home pretty effectively. Right. But if you don't have broadband, you don't have that option. Uh, so, yes, uh, it's not going to be cheap. It's going to be expensive. But every dime that this government invests in this will be a dime well spent, and we'll get a significant return on that investment over the course of time. And the other, one of the other things that COVID kind of demonstrated, at least in my, in my mind, is that there is an appeal to being in nature. There is an appeal. that This part of the, the, the world, the Appalachian region, is one of the most beautiful parts of the world. It's, it's incredible, our lakes and our rivers and our mountains. Um, people want to live here. And if we have broadband, they'll be much more likely to come. So I, I, I think that, again, a lot of things need to be addressed, but perhaps nothing is more important right now than extending broadband, regardless of what it takes, to every household in uh, rural America. Well, you're right. A lot of people do want to live there. A lot of people in Washington uh, have vacation homes in, in many of the areas of of. Uh, uh, West Virginia and, and Southern Ohio. Uh, go ahead, Maria. So, Congress Member uh, Space, I'm having a disconnect here because when I think about poverty and coal and most likely unions, I don't think Republican. How is it that they're red? It's a good yeah, question. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, 
and it's a, it's a complicated answer, and, and nobody has all the answers. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, what has happened is the Democratic Party has not done um, a good job of both understanding uh, the, the challenges that this region faces as well as its its potential, uh, but also uh, talking, speaking to people in these regions. And what what has happened, and I don't I don't uh, by any means suggest these are bad things, but when a party focuses on um, some of the issues that, that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party focuses on, it is perceived in such a way in this region that they're not being listened to. So, for example, um, gun rights are an important cultural element associated with the Appalachian region, and uh, there are a lot of people in that region who value that. And again, this is this is something that they've uh, handed down over the course of many generations. And you know, people in the Appalachian region are every bit as offended when there's a school shooting as people in urban and metropolitan areas. But at the end of the day. They see the Democratic Party oftentimes as being, you know, wanting to take their guns. That may not be the case. Again, Democrats have not done a very good job of, of truly explaining what their gun policies provide. But that's the point. They haven't spoken to these people on their terms. And I think the Republican Party, frankly, has. Um, I think that they have uh, done a better job of, of tapping in and touching the nerves uh, of people in rural America. And the Democratic Party can do that too. Tell the truth about your policies. Make sure that people understand what your policies are, that you that you are working for them. And, and perhaps the most important thing of all, show up and listen. Don't be condescending. Listen to what they have to say. And I, again, I, I don't want to keep going back to the new administration, but I have very high hopes uh, that uh, the strategic communications of this uh, administration call it are going to be such that they factor in the importance of listening to the Appalachian region. You know, I, I again, uh, Congressman, I think you hit the nail on the head, especially with Maria and I. Uh, I won't speak for Maria, but uh, I think she's made it clear that she doesn't have a problem with guns in America, and I don't have a problem. I'm a former gun owner. Uh, and, and, you know, we just want to keep them out of the hands of crazy people. But um, I think the Democratic Party, I think you're, you're exactly right. We talk down to these people. We say to them, you know, you don't really want a gun. You're just too damn dumb to realize it. So let us explain it to you instead of yeah, sitting and, down at a table and, and, you know, and having a conversation. I'm sorry, go ahead. So, no, that's exactly how it comes off, Senator. I don't think that's the intention of those right. who create a platform, but that's right. when you're not, you know, speaking to people at their own level, uh, looking at them in the eyes, showing up in the communities, that's the impression they have. And we've got to figure out a way, I think, as a party, and, and both parties, frankly, need to figure out a way to better understand and, and, and really listen to the concerns of the people in this country. And, you know, gun gun rights in Washington, D.C. and gun rights in, in rural America shouldn't probably shouldn't be the same rights. There are different rights for, for each right. community. And and this idea that we can just blanket, you know, we can just uh, change everything uh, uh, universally, I think, is always is also uh, a misconception. Uh, what about things like the Electoral College? 
Should we get rid of the Electoral College? Does it hurt people in rural America that uh, we've got a system where it makes sense in terms of if you want to win an election to focus on big urban areas and ignore them? Uh, uh, does that does that make a difference, you think? So, I, you know, I'm a, a really firm believer. I'm not a strict constitutional constructionist by any means, but I'm a believer in the Constitution, and, I, and, and that's an important constitutional provision. It can be argued that it's somewhat anti-democratic but, or that it results in anti-democratic uh, outcomes, but if you wanted to fix things that were anti-democratic in this country that would be better not just for rural communities but at all communities, there are plenty of targets I think they're much more legitimate that you go after. For example, we could stop allowing legislators to gerrymander their districts, or we could we, we could put more reasonable campa- campaign limits uh, on dark money. Uh, these things, I think, are a gross perversion of democracy, and I think it, our democracy would work much better if we were, uh, if we were to be rational about our approach to these things. So, you know, I, I'm not a constitutional scholar by any means. I do have a respect for the document, and I think that when you're talking about making a change of that import, uh, there are a lot of factors that you have to consider, and not the least of which is, are you doing something that's going to end up alienating and dividing this country even further? And I have some very grave concerns about the divisions that we see out there today, and I think if you were to if both parties were to get behind an effort to end gerrymandering or, or behind an effort to put more reasonable campaign contribution limitations on both parties, it, it, it would be hard for the American public to find fault in that. If you go around talking about an electoral college constitutional amendment, that's the kind of thing that creates resentment. And from my perspective, it would be wiser to spend our time on those other issues. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, since you 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 brought it up, what do you think about my idea that congressional terms for for representatives in the House should be four years and not two years, so that they don't have to spend all their time trying to raise money and trying to run? Do you think that would help if we extended the the the, the terms of of Congress members of Congress to four years from two? Well, I can. Yeah, I can tell you, Senator, having you know gone through this process myself, these two-year terms are uh, the moment you get elected, you have to start campaigning for re-election. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have to raise as much money, that would be entirely appropriate. In fact, that's what we'd want. The Constitution was structured in a way that members of Congress would be answerable to their constituents on a frequent basis. Uh, so I guess my answer is, if we're not going to fix the money issue, that would probably be a very constructive step in the right direction. I sure would like to fix that money issue. Yeah, me too. Maria? I think it's ridiculous that it's a two-year term. I, I, I don't care on any level. What what other position is there in life that every two years you're you know, yeah. asking for it to be re-upped? <clears throat> this is going to be a delicate question to you, and it doesn't concern your state necessarily, but in the research that I've done about the region, they talk about, so they're specifically talking about East Tennessee, West Virginia, Western Virginia, Kentucky, Northern Georgia, and Western parts of North and South Carolina having rare mental and physical disorders that are attributed to inbreeding. What do you have to say about that? 
I, I, that's, that's to me, that's precisely the kind of stereotypical, uh, focus that, that has created, um, the problem. This is, inbreeding is not a problem anywhere in this country, including the Appalachian region. And I, I think it's, again, that is not the kind of thing I choose to focus my uh, energy and time around. That's part of the problem, Maria. The, the, the region has become stereotyped by outsiders. Most of uh, Many people, when they think about this region, they do so based upon cultural exposure um, that at its roots has no basis, or at the, at the very least, leaves out the good things. There are, there are every, every community in every corner of this country is troubled in some way, almost every. Uh, but every community has great assets and strengths. And uh, there are some amazing things going on in the Appalachian region right now that I, I couldn't be prouder of and I see enormous potential for. Uh, especially if we have a government that understands that and is willing to, to help catalyze that. Well, given what Maria just asked, yeah, you know, it we, was uh, a University of Kentucky geneticist that, that spoke about it and said that there's like 12 cases in the whole world and three of them are in the same creek within three miles of each other. And that, I, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to address that because that is still prevalent. In fact, it was an article in the Washington Post of all places. Well, that's uh, just again, Maria. That's I'm that that I'm not gonna. With all due respect, I mean, I think there are things we can talk about in this region that are meaningful, uh, and there is just absolutely no truth whatsoever in the suggestion that that uh, this is incestuous relationships is some kind of a problem in the region. It is not. I have never personally witnessed any situation like that, um, and I'd be surprised if, if it's more prevalent there than it is anywhere else in the world. Okay. Thank well, you for dispelling that. Well, given that, and given that we've all uh, seen deliverance, uh, is there any attempt on your part or your organization's part to enlist positive imagery from people that, uh, I don't know, let's call them celebrities. Take one of my favorite uh, national treasure, uh, Dolly Parton, who grew up in Appalachia and is also someone who, who, who uh, uh, you know, is very uh, benevolent in her, in her uh, you know, attempts to try to help the region. Have you tried to enlist people as spokesmen who can who can stand up there and give positive, uh, you know, testimony to how great Appalachia really is. So certainly, we have a lot of uh, children of Appalachia who have gone on to do some great, important, and wonderful things. And every time you know anybody gives back to their community, it's a good thing. So we welcome all that. I can tell you that we just uh, we had a brush with that. Um, Joe uh, Burrow the quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, who won the Heisman Trophy at LSU National Championship. He's from Athens, Ohio. It's a, a small town in, in uh, southern Ohio. And uh, I don't know if, if, Maria, you or Senator Brown had a chance to watch his Heisman speech uh, when mm -hmm. he accepted the Heisman Trophy uh, last year. It was moving, and he talked about the uh, – uh, the fact that there were kids in his community that go to bed hungry every night. It moved me, and it moved a lot of people. In fact, one of my, 
one of my team members, we started a Facebook fundraising page based on that uh, speech and uh, generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in contributions from people all over the country. Wow. To help. So you're right. It can, it can make a difference. And, you know, our experience has been that when people go on uh, to do big things, uh, they, they still care about their communities. A good friend of mine, David Wilhelm, former DNC chair, He's from Athens as well, and he continues to give back to the region. He continues to try to find projects within the region. He's devoted to the region. We see that among a lot of people in our region. John Glenn was another he, another Appalachian from southeastern Ohio, and he never oh. forgot it. And yeah. he, he came back regularly. He talked about the region. He promoted the region at every opportunity. We've had a, a number of really, really important, powerful, significant uh Good people come from the region who, uh, you're right, uh, oftentimes are willing to stand up and help out. Well, and you know, it's a problem that we suffer from in Washington, D.C. America, for, for to a large extent, thinks of, that everybody that lives in the District of Columbia works for the IRS and, uh, you know, is out to get them. So it's it's a problem that we deal with all the time, and 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 yeah, it's uh, it is great to get people. We have people in the district, of course, who do the same thing, who come to Washington, who have, who have achieved great things, and and come back to the community and give back. Uh, given that, uh, let's talk about colleges for for um, uh, a minute. Um, as you know, my brother was Paul was president of a college, <clears throat> uh, one of the top community colleges in the country, and uh, we're very proud of him for that. Uh, but uh, since the pandemic, um, there's been a 10 percent decrease in uh, people going to community colleges. What's going on in Appalachia with community colleges since since they <clears throat> They're a jumping off point. I'm the graduate of a community college. My brother's a graduate of community college. They're kind of a jump off, jumping off point for people that don't have the kind of resources that sometimes you need to go to a four-year college. Uh, can you speak to that, or, or what's going yeah, on sure. in relation with that? We have a very robust network of community colleges, of course, including uh, Zane State that uh, your brother, the great Dr. Paul Brown, uh, presided over for, for years and still, uh, I think, uh, does his best to help in other ways. Uh, these uh, institutions run from, you know, the Mahoning Valley all the way down into deep southern Ohio. They have long been and will continue to be a very, very important part of the workforce development and realization of opportunities uh, component in our regional economy. Uh, like all colleges around the country, the virus has created extraordinary uh, stressors and pressure, financial in nature. Um, but they'll survive this. And, and one of the reasons they're going to survive is because they're creative. They're led by uh, smart, passionate people. And uh, they're actually now really Eastern Gateway over in Belmont County has developed this awesome relationship with building trades and, and labor unions and has also developed a really strong online curriculum. And they're actually providing tens of thousands of students with an education now. So I see the role of community colleges uh, as a very important one as it stands now in the Appalachian region. And I see the value of that importance being enhanced and, and uh 
uh, increasing over the coming years. I also want to mention that we also have some some great universities in the region, and of course the the, the, the dominant player here would be a high university, uh, which has a long history of uh, producing outstanding graduates and is of enormous value uh, to our region. Again, like a, a lot of other institutions, higher ed institutions, uh, struggling right now with the impact of COVID. I was heartened to see that the stimulus bill passed and that a significant amount of money is going to be going toward higher ed. Um, my hope is that we'll be able to save these institutions and make them stronger. Uh, because at the end of the day, whether it's our university or any of these community colleges, the long-term success of these institutions is linked uh, to the success or failures of our region. Should the first two years be free? Should community colleges be free? Uh, I think they should be. <laughs> and yeah, I think that too. President Biden has made clear that uh, that he wants to push uh, affordability at that level, and perhaps even uh, a process whereby people can become educated without having to pay for it. Yeah, well, they well, and ironically, yeah. in California, right. it's like $30 a unit at a community college here. That's what it, it was it, for it, me. It, yeah, it's very, wow. very affordable. Um, but, but about Ohio University, so I stumbled onto this organization that is formed mostly by graduates of Ohio University in Southeast Ohio, and it's called Expat Appalachians, and they're, it's a, students who are passionate about Appalachia, and they write and they talk about it. Some have left and some have returned. And they only formed in 2017, but it's fascinating who makes up what they do and what they report about. So, the, and they've been all over the world too, but they're scattered throughout the United States. And I, I just thought, I guess you can find something about anything well, in terms of their passion about Appalachia. That's right. And a lot of these folks are not from the region. They come into the region, and some of them stay. I actually, on my team at Sunny Creek, I've got. Um, almost not everybody, but almost every everyone on my team was an OU grad, and two or three of them actually are from big cities: Dayton, Cleveland, uh, Columbus. And they went to school down there, and they loved the region so much they stayed uh, after they graduated. Because hmm. hmm. yeah, do Appalachians relate to one another? Do they consider themselves an Appalachian first, or are they? identified with their state or their county or their community and then have that broad brush of being called an Appalachian? The Appalachian brush is a very broad one. People do not wake up every morning and say, I'm an Appalachian. They say, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm you know, a Doverite or I'm uh, from Coshocton or I'm from Athens. Um, they, they very much relate to their, their the cities of birth, the counties that they uh, live in as, as well. And what's really, you know, interesting and unique about our region is how you can go from one county to another uh, across the region, and it seems like it's it's different. Uh, they have a different media source. Usually, there's one newspaper for each county. They listen to different radio stations. Mm. Uh, they have different economies. Um, some are, you know, in timber. And the next one of them might be in natural gas. Uh, so there's a lot of diversity across the region, uh, not in the traditional sense, but it that that diverse component again, um, uh, it's 
particularly well widespread across the region has been a has has rendered it difficult. Again, it's become very provincial, and it's rendered it difficult for the region to coalesce around big ideas, to work together uh, across the city and county lines. So it's a, a good question, Maria. It's very much a local identification for these folks. Interesting. Well, Which you, probably makes it unique, but also more difficult probably to organize or galvanize. That's the point. Right, right. It is hard to organize. And, and some people call it herding cats. But but uh, the truth is there's there's a lot of compelling reasons for them to organize. And that's really kind of the defining foundation for, for my business is to look for ways that we can convene, find commonalities, and uh, raise people's voices together. You know, now that we brought up college, I've, I've held my, my temper as long as I can, but I got to ask <laughs> you, uh, uh, Congressman, if you could, I know you went to Ohio State, if you could, I went to the University of Maryland, if you, and we're now in the Big Ten, so if you could kindly call those guys and tell them to stop humiliating our football team every year, I would really appreciate it. Because I, I, I go to the games and I've got to take my Maryland sweatshirt off and, and, and put something red on so so that I don't get too embarrassed. It's amazing well, school, amazing, amazing football program. But anyway, let, let me talk. For sure. Yeah, and I know, you know, I got to tell you about my brother. Now that he's in Ohio, he's an Ohio State fan. You know, when he went to Vanderbilt, he was a Vandy fan. So <clears throat> he's also a University of Maryland graduate, but he's abandoned us, uh, it seems, for a better football team. Well, you can't uh, really blame him for that. No, you <laughs> really can't. The last time I saw their record, I watched a game, an amazing uh, football game one night, and I saw their record, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I said... There's, I've never heard of a college team, you know, Alabama, Oklahoma, any of them that have, have done as well. It's just amazing. But anyway, you voted I on H.R. 1905, which would have given the D.C., would, would have given the District of Columbia a voting member of Congress. It would have made Eleanor Holmes Norton at the time, it would have given her a vote. Uh, what do you think about D.C. statehood? Do you think that's something that should happen? You know, I think it's something that may. Uh, uh, be, and, and I think it certainly is something I, I would look to support. I think that everyone in this country, regardless of where you live, should have access to a voting member of Congress and two U.S. senators. And there are millions of people right now in D.C. that cannot say that. That's right. Thank you for that. We like to get everybody on the uh, on that issue. Not to put Maria, you on the spot. Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that it seems that we are focusing a lot more on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that Appalachia of any population could benefit from that more than most. What are your thoughts about that? And are you making inroads in that regard? I think we do have to promote that at every level in this country, and I think we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. I think that how you define diversity um, also matters. And when you have entire communities, again, I've got communities in in southern Ohio. There are some counties in which upwards of 35% of the people that live in those counties do not have access to potable water. 
That means they don't have a sink they can go to and turn it on. Yeah, they have to pump it in or, or bring it in on trucks. Um, that is not acceptable. It should not be. It's a third world nation scenario. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, yes, I think the Appalachian region can benefit and will benefit if a holistic perspective is applied by our federal government toward making sure that everybody, regardless of where they live, without regard to their zip code, has an opportunity to do something important or at least succeed in this country. And right now, sadly, we cannot say that that the opportunity that many of these Appalachian kids being born in this region today are going to have the same opportunities the kids in urban or suburban areas may have. And that's something we as a nation have, I think, a moral imperative to fix. I agree with that. And I think that we are uh, headed in that direction. And I think we're coming to a, a, a point in American history where all there's been a confluence of uh, things from the uh, unfortunate murder of George Floyd to uh, what's happened recently in the nation's capital, where we realize that that there's a need for reform, even at the most uh, basic level. Uh, we're starting to run out of time here, uh, Congressman. So before we go any further, is there a website where people can find out more about Sunday Creek Horizon? Do you want to share us, that with us? Of course. Thank you, Senator. Uh, SundayCreekHorizons.com. It's spelled like it sounds. And if you're interested in finding out about some of the great work that our region is doing for the kids uh, in, in the region, the Appalachian Children Coalition, AppalachianChildrenCoalition.org, is a really good site. It's a it's an amazing organization that's uh, filling a void right now in a in a profoundly important way. And uh, we're we're doing everything we can do right now to raise awareness around the the interests and needs of the kids of this region. Right. <clears throat> and what beyond education and and basic services. Uh, Congressman, what else do the children of Appalachia need? So they need stability. They need they need uh, opportunity. Um, there are, there are a, an inordinate percentage of our kids right now in the region that do not live with a family or with a parent. Uh, there is a, an extraordinarily high homelessness rate right now in our region, where these kids engage in this pattern of couch surfing, which in the Appalachian region is it, it's not uncommon to see people. You know, a friend can stay for four or five nights, but he can't stay here. So, so they go from home to home. Uh, the opioid epidemic has racked our communities. Um, we are, um, if you look at the number of pills per person in, in each of the counties of the Appalachian region dispensed, these opioids dispensed, it's shocking how, how, how these drugs have ripped through our community. And this has had an enormous impact on kids who are now, many of whom, living in dysfunctional households. Um, so we, we, we feel like if we don't do something meaningful for these kids, we run the risk of losing an entire generation here. Um, and these, this, is the, this is, again, the region that has, that has produced a Joe Burrow, that has produced a John Glenn, that has right. produced a David Wilhelm. There, right. there, there are... These kids just need the same kind of opportunity that everybody else has, and uh, we're dedicated to doing everything we can do to get that for them. 
Well, uh, that's very well said, and we're about to sign off. Maria, do you have a last question? Just want to thank you for all that you do, and I, I would imagine the challenges must be distressing and depressing at times. Just what you're mentioning about the potable water and the opioid crisis and uh, children being homeless, and I, I, I mean, it's got to be tough. Thank you for for towing the line for us for, on behalf of us. We appreciate and, you uh, helping raise awareness about the issue. And you know what, Congressman, run for something. I'll come to Ohio and vote for you. I mean, if I don't really, have to raise money anymore, I'll run. But not until then. All right. All right. Well, you've just been an amazing guest. And, yes. And, you know, uh, the fact that there are people like you that are willing to not only run for public office, but uh, constantly uh, find ways to help their community, uh, that's what inspires me and I think inspires most Americans. So thanks so much for being on the show. And as things progress, we hope you'll come back sometime and tell us how things are going. I would value that. And if there's anything we can do for you in Washington, let us know. Thank you so much, Senator. Maria, a pleasure, and wishing you both the best. In honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Michael, can I just make a little plug? I'm speaking on an international panel tomorrow morning because uh, March is Women in History Month. It is. And it's it's being hosted by the Systematic Diversity and Inclusion Group. And I'm one of three panelists and talking about my research on female genital mutilation because they're talking about gender issues so i just wanted to give a shout out to that good and and you know it is uh women's history month and we're going to try to have a couple of good women guests on in the next few weeks so please tune in and tonight you know we leave you with the song every week and and tonight uh i couldn't think of anything specific for for congressman space so i'm doing this i'm sending this out to washington dc uh, for the people of a- Appalachia, and also from the people of, of America. Let's pass this stimulus bill in the House and get this uh, aid to people. Um, you know what I always say, uh, Maria, when in doubt, go with the Beatles. So here's, <laughs> here's help by the Beatles. Perfect. Maria. Yes. <laughs>